If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, turn with me to John chapter 1 as we continue our journey through this book of the gospel where it was written by Jesus' very closest friend. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. I would love to invite you to, to take one of those. We're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning in verse 19. So let's jump right in. John chapter 1, verse 19, John writes these words. This is the testimony of John, meaning John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, here's the question they asked John the Baptist, who are you? So what's going on here? Basically, we have the Jewish Leadership Council, more formally called the, the Sanhedrin, that was made up of the priest and the Levites, and the Levites would be one of the, the 12 tribes there. They could no longer ignore the revival that was taking place under John the Baptist's ministry. It was a little bit unusual, and so they wanted to know, let, let's, let's investigate a little bit about what's going on, especially since John the Baptist, that he himself was a Levite, and he also was the son of a priest. Now, many of these Jewish leaders, they took offense to the message that John the Baptist was preaching. He was telling the Jews that they were unclean, and that was offensive to them because they felt that because they were part of God's chosen people that they were not unclean. And then he takes it even a step farther and he says that they too need to be baptized. Now understand in Jesus' day, the only people who were baptized were the Jews and were the Gentiles who were non-Jews that were coming into the Jewish faith. So whenever John is saying, no, now the Jews, you too need to be baptized, it was appalling to them because now he is saying that, that Jews as well as Gentiles, you stand in the same need for forgiveness. You stand in the same need to be redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So the fact that he's telling them this for the Jewish leaders, it was, it was nothing less than, than shocking to them. So the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem... They send these priests and they send Levites to investigate John, to dig a little deeper to understand exactly who he is. You see, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he even arrives on the scene, John makes it clear that wherever Jesus is revealed, there's always going to be opposition. Why is that? Well, remember last week we said there's opposition because whenever people's sin is revealed, they are going to be a little bit upset about what's taking place. So why would we expect anything different today, friends? If we live out the gospel, if we preach the gospel which says there is salvation outside of no other name except for the name of Jesus Christ, if we say the only way to have eternal life is to confess your sin, to repent of your sin, and to follow Jesus, then we should expect opposition. Why do we expect opposition? Because we're teaching people that this goes against their sinful, selfish nature. So opposition to the gospel, it's been happening ever since Jesus arrived on the scene. So this opposition that we as Christians are facing today, this should not surprise us. The gospel is offensive because it goes against what our own flesh says is true. So let's move on. In verse 20 through 25, it says, He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked them, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. 
So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? This is how he answered. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? So now these men that have come from Jerusalem, they asked Jesus five different, excuse me, John the Baptist, five separate questions, and they're all based upon the Old Testament prophecy. The first question they ask, and they say, are you the what? The Messiah. Excuse me. Most people believe that John the Baptist, um, that John, excuse me, the author of this gospel, that he was probably a disciple of John the Baptist. So maybe he overheard this conversation. So the first question, they come to John the Baptist, say, are you the Messiah? Now, for years and years, the nation of Israel, as well as other nations, they had been longing for, they had been awaiting this Messiah. They knew that from the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from the lineage of King David. But they expected that the Messiah was going to be a, a military leader, that he was going to come and bring peace to Jerusalem. He's going to bring peace to Israel. And he's also going to restore Israel as the ruler, as, as the, the, the place that everyone was looking to because they were going to be the military leader of the world. So when the Levites come and they ask John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? He answers very bluntly. He says, no, I'm not the Christ. The second question they ask in verse 21, they say, okay, are, are you Elijah? It's almost like they've got this list they're going through. Okay, if you're not Christ, are you Elijah, the prophet, who it was told that he would return before the day of the Lord? Now, we know that Elijah, he did not die. Do you remember that story? He was taken up in a whirlwind of fire. And he was prophesied about during the last book of the Old Testament. If you look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 with me, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So once again, John says, Nope, I'm not Elijah. Now, friends, how are we to reconcile this? If it was prophesied in the Old Testament, which we believe is 100% true, that Elijah the prophet would come before the Messiah, and John says, nope, I'm not the prophet, I mean, I'm not Elijah, how do we reconcile these things together? I want you to write down two verses. The first thing I want you to write down is Matthew chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus says this. He says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So we have Peter, James, and John who are with Jesus, and Jesus tells them that Elijah has already come. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. And he said, but listen, but they didn't recognize Jesus. In essence, what's he saying? He is saying that John the Baptist, he was the Elijah-like prophet. Next passage I want you to write down is Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is when the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father. Remember, he was a priest. And they were at an old age, he and Elizabeth, and they couldn't have children. And this is what Gabriel tells to Zechariah. He says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah. To do what? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
So when you put these two passages together, what we see is, no, John is not Elijah. But in essence, what we do see is he came with the same spirit and the same power as Elijah. So in that sense, Elijah had already come. Third question they ask him, all right, you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? They ask him in verse 21. According to Jewish tradition, there would be another prophet who would come before the day of the Lord. He says, nope, I'm not the prophet either. So then, in verses 23 and 23, finally, the fourth question, who are you? Don't you sense their patience kind of wearing thin by this point? All right, we know who you're not, but listen, we can't go back to the Sanhedrin. They sent us here trying to discover who you are. Just tell us, who are you? Give us an answer so that we can't just say you're not these people, but who exactly are you? Now remember, they're asking these questions, but they're missing the answer that is right there in front of them. They were so focused on John, they were so focused on the disruption that he was bringing that they missed what God was doing in their midst. And what was God doing? He was preparing the hearts of his people for the preparation of the one whom they had been studying about, the one that they had been teaching about. And instead of being prepared for this one who was to come, they're questioning John and they're missing what God is doing right there in their midst. Now remember John's goal, it was not to do what? It wasn't to draw attention to himself. All along the way, we see that John wanted to do what? Reflect the true light. He never wanted to be about himself. He always pointed back to Jesus. So it only fits that when he's finally asked this question, well, tell me who you are, in verse 23, that he gives an answer that points back to the prophecy found in the book of Isaiah. Here's the prophecy that's found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, that you just read in verse 23 of John chapter 1. It says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John's response is to say, hey, thank you. Don't look at me. I'm just a voice. I'm just a voice that's pointing to the way. And the message that I'm bringing you, that's what's important. The message is get ready because the Lord is coming. And then the fifth and final verse, the question in verse 25, he says, well, why do you baptize? The heart of the question is this. What right do you have to baptize people? True to form, once again, John doesn't want to draw attention to himself, so he deflects it back to Jesus. In essence, his answer is, yes, I baptize with water, but pay no attention to me. Don't be distracted. All I am doing is preparing you for the Holy One who has now come. So focus your attention not on me. Focus on Jesus. Friends, don't we have so much to learn from the example of John? Wouldn't our lives be better if we lived by that example? That we didn't seek any of the attention, any of the glory for ourselves, but instead, whenever someone does give us attention, whenever we do leverage whatever God has given us and people look at us, that we say, don't look at me, look at Jesus. That everything that we do, that we are just a mirror that we hold up and say, I'm just a reflection of the true light of Jesus. He is the one I worship. Anything that's good in me is because of he who created me and we would be a reflection of him. Verse 26 says, And John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you don't even know. 
even one who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Talk about humility. He says, I'm not even worthy of untying the strap of Jesus' sandal. This was an unthinkably low task. Untying the strap of someone's sandal, it was a task too demeaning for anyone except for a slave. Now think with me for a second about who John the Baptist was. We talked about last week that he was set apart from God. We know that he was a prophet. We also know that, listen to what Jesus said about him in Matthew 11. He says, among those, meaning John the Baptist, born of women, there has arisen no one greater than who? John the Baptist. And all these things set apart from God, God called um, a, a prophet, saying that there's no one greater that's been born of woman than John the Baptist. And yet John saw how extraordinary Jesus was. He knew how holy and eternal he was. And in turn, he saw his own unworthiness when he was compared to Jesus. Friends, shame on us if we ever come before our Heavenly Father thinking that we are anything because of our earthly accomplishments. That when we stand next to the incomparable Jesus Christ and we understand how worthy He is, we understand that the only thing that we can stand on is the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we can even enter into His presence. So in the end, this group from the Sanhedrin they go back and they don't really have much to say because they, they, can't arrest G, they can't arrest John the Baptist. It's not a crime just to be one who says that he's preparing the way for the Messiah. So verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So the next day, the group leaves, and John sees Jesus coming from a distance, and he points out to him, and he announces the most important message of his life. Look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. All throughout Israel's history, God had revealed that sin and separation from him could only be removed one way, and that was by blood sacrifice. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. No forgiveness of sin could be granted by God apart from an acceptable sacrifice that would act as a substitute for one's sin. We see it all throughout the Bible. Remember the story of Abraham. And that Abraham sacrificed a ram, which was a part of a, a lamb, and that, and that family that was provided by God instead of sacrificing Isaac. A lamb was sacrificed at Passover. A lamb was sacrificed daily in the tabernacle, and later it was sacrificed in the temple as a sin offering by the individuals. In Israel, someone who sinned would bring a lamb to the door of the temple and they would lay their hands on the head of that lamb. They would confess the sin that they had committed before God and then they would kill the lamb. That lamb was an innocent substitute that paid the price for a sinful person to be made right with God. 
They would then take the lamb, that, uh, the blood that had been shed, and the priest would take the blood from that lamb and he would sprinkle it on the altar of God. And it would uh, show that death had accomplished the judgment of sin. Isaiah prophesied 600 years before Jesus was even born that he would serve, that Jesus would serve as the sacrificial lamb of God. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And as if the Jewish people needed yet another sign that God had, divine, had orchestrated this divine plan, when was Jesus crucified? During Passover. But sadly, even after Jesus had fulfilled all of these Old Testament prophecies, so many of his own people, they missed what God was doing right there in their midst. Now let me bring this in for a landing real quick here. Ever since John the Baptist was a child, he knew his purpose. He knew what his role was in life, and his role was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah all throughout his life. It was never about John, was it? Anytime John received attention, he always pointed it back to Jesus. If I have to take two words and try to define who John the Baptist was, the two words that, that I came up with that best describe John the Baptist would be humility and boldness. Humility and boldness. Now, at first, those two words, they seem to contrast one another, don't they? But when you dig into it, these are two words that should describe each and every one of us if we claim to be followers of Jesus. Humility. It was never about John. It was always about Jesus. You've heard that the famous quote before that C.S. Lewis said. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's what? It's thinking about yourself less. Big difference there. What about Boldness. Boldness, whenever John was presented with an opportunity to talk about himself, to brag about himself, say, look at your leadership, look at all that you're doing, he never missed an opportunity to do what? To point people back to Jesus. John had a particular way of seeing himself. He also had a particular way of seeing Jesus. And the result was when he saw himself and when he saw Jesus, he was completely humble, but he was bold, not in who he was, but in the faith of the one that he served. So practically speaking, what does it look like for those of us who are followers of Jesus to be humble and to be bold as we share the good news of Jesus Christ? How should we respond when other people say, Christianity is so exclusive. How arrogant must you be to believe that unless you trust in the name of Jesus Christ, that is the only way that you'll have eternal life. How do we respond to that? Let me share with you how I hope we would respond. First, we would say there's only one thing that separates each and every one of us, no matter our color, no matter where we're from, no matter how much money we have. There's one thing that separates us from God, and that is our sin. But God in his goodness and out of his love, he provided one sacrifice that provides forgiveness for all of us who place our hope and trust in him. Why? Because this sacrifice was the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Friends, to believe that there is any other way for salvation, 
To believe that we can have a relationship with God outside of believing and receiving Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is to say that God's sacrifice of his one and only son, it was optional. If we say, well, you can go to heaven by not trusting in Jesus, then why did God send Jesus down the cross in the first place? If it was just one of many other ways, then we, what we would be saying is, well, we don't really need to be forgiven of our sins because you can just do a bunch of good things and that'll get you into heaven. That's why we must cling, cling to the fact that the only way for salvation is through the blood, through the death and the resurrection of the one sinless, spotless lamb of God. If God sent his sacrifice for a sin, for our sin, he didn't send him as one of several ways for us to be forgiven and redeemed. No, he sent Jesus to be the way, the truth, the life, and there's no other way to heaven apart through the death of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And friends, that's not exclusive. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's inclusive to realize the fact that he made a way for salvation. And then not only did he make a way, he provided the sacrifice. That's what I call inclusive, that he made a way so that every single person who will call upon the name of the Lord, who will trust in him for salvation, they have the opportunity to be part of his family. Christianity is not an exclusive religion. It's one that says whosoever will that will place their hope and trust in Jesus. But we only say there is one way, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's a gift. And church family, that's a message we must never stray from. There's no gray area in that. It was clear from John the Baptist, and it's clear today. Behold the Lamb of God who takes your sin who takes my sin away so that we might become, as we studied last week, a child of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you took our sin upon your shoulders, that you died a death, that you sent your son Jesus to die a death that he most certainly did not deserve, but because of your love for us, he paid the price for us. Lord, I thank you for your love that you demonstrated on the cross. And Lord, right now, I pray that if there is anyone here today that has never called upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, that today would be the day of their salvation. They would stop trying to earn your love and instead they would simply receive it. They would confess their sin and they would call upon you, finding you as a loving father, waiting, longing, desiring to be in fellowship with them. Lord, I pray that we would live in the light of the fact that we are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And no matter what this world throws our way, we have hope because we are children of yours, and we live and we long for not the things of pleasures here on this earth, but we long for eternity where we will be united with you, with Frank, with Dr. Rogers, with Archie Hampton, with Donnie Allen, with those that have gone before you that have expressed their faith and trust in you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that the tomb is empty and because of that, we have hope no matter what comes our way today. 
It is in the powerful and matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.